North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room, episode 143 for July the 31st, 2019. This is Wes Fryer coming to you from Oklahoma City, where today is really my last day of summer because I have to go back to work tomorrow. And I know I have no sympathy from my partner in crime, Dr. Neifer, <laughs> who has been slaving in the galley, as it were, rowing the virtual, the, the paddles of virtual schooling in Montana all summer long. So how how is uh, the weather? Do you guys have smoke in the air at this point? And uh, yeah, how's life in Missoula now? It's an excellent question. So I, I am joining you from my basement tonight. Uh, and one of the reasons why is that it's 97 degrees outside right now. So it's a little warm here in Missoula. And unfortunately, fire season has started here. So there's currently three active larger blazes in Montana. The one north of Helena, which is where I've been the last couple of days um, at a school administrators of Montana conference, uh, they... Um, it's apparently contained, but at one point it was up to 8,000 acres. And so, um, yeah, it's that time of year. Um, I expect the, the, the sky to get a little smoky and hopefully, uh, last summer was, was, wasn't too bad. Two summers ago, however, it was so bad that they were having to cancel, uh, most, most athletic events and, and, and practices as well in Western Montana, um, uh, up until, uh, uh, nearly October before they were able to, to really, uh, uh, do the schedules as, as normal. So, um, yeah, great, super awesome, uh, that it's warm and we, we had kind of a cool spring and a cool early summer, but yeah, I'm kind of looking forward to the fall now. So, because the 100 degree weather is not super great for me personally. Well, we want to welcome anybody who is viewing live. We are experimenting, uh, and we might just say using for real, uh, this new platform called StreamYard. As you may know, the Google Hangout on Air platform as of tomorrow, August the 1st, is officially defunct. Uh, I really hadn't received a lot of updates I was reading since maybe like 2014. And uh, we've August investigated first. some some different ways to uh, continue our show. But uh, yeah, the StreamYard is a pretty, pretty great platform. And um, we actually did, full disclosure, uh, pony up a few dollars for the regular account, the basic account. And what it is letting us do is use a website called Restream, restream.io. And that allows the stream to simultaneously go multiple places. So it is going to uh, Facebook Live, which at this point, because we're not paying Restream, uh, is just on my profile, but then uh, it's also going to YouTube Live. And it is being archived in both places. So we will continue to have the small uh, 32 kilobit audio versions available on our website and uh, smaller 360p video versions if you wanted to download those. But I'm very, very excited to apparently have found a solution that will let us continue to use YouTube because it is just such a great platform, uh, not only for allowing for comments and interaction, but also, you know, just having it there and, and hosted. And so if you want to share a comment during the live show, um, that will actually pop up uh, for me here in StreamYard. And I can actually click and let that, uh, you know, comment be, be viewable to the world. So we also want to remind you that you can get show notes on edtechsr.com slash links. Yes, there are all kinds of fancy little things. It's, it's actually a pretty basic interface. And, and uh, we were playing with it a little bit just before we started. We can show articles, move ourselves around. 
Um, hey, and it looks like we have two live viewers. So please uh, chime in with comments, with questions. And uh, Dr. Neifer, where, well, what, what are we going to talk about tonight besides a little bit of weather updates from Montana? And uh, where should we go first? Well, lots of interesting things going on in the tech world, and and I should also note that it's been at least my experience that August one usually means uh, more ed tech news with 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 the various institutions across the United States going back to school. Uh, Montana generally doesn't start until the end of August or early September, although some uh, 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 northeastern Montana schools will will be in by the middle of the month. I know Dr. Fryer schools in your area tend to be back in session a little earlier, so I do estimate that there will be some additional announcements by various big tech folks around education things. But I thought I would start this week with a very interesting thing that I noticed that you tweeted out about earlier, uh, Wes, but under our broad category of tech correction, and this is something we talk about on the show when we're talking about the kind of reaction to the tech large-esque, roughly related to the 2016 election, but also broad themes around the notion of, uh, you know, maybe regulating tech a little more. And by regulation, I just don't mean government regulation. I mean what we're personally doing with technology, how we're maybe scaling technology back to right-size it in our society, culture, and also personally in our lives. So it's an excellent article in today's Recode about a bill that is appearing in the House of Representatives Representative Josh Hawley, um, I think that's how you say it, who's a Republican from Missouri, has introduced something called the SMART Act or the Social Media Addiction Reduction uh, Technology Act, SMART Act, where I, I can't even begin to describe that this is the wrong regulation we want for social media. And I think, Wes, you and I both picked different things out of this. The, the, the headline for me was that the bill asks technology to basically self-regulate you in that you can only access a particular site for 30 minutes a day before it kicks you off, which is a shocking notion to me. Like, I, I don't disagree with the fact that we should be limiting our use of things like social media, but the fact that the government's regulating that is unreal to me. Um, and it immediately, I mean, the problem with regulating in this way is that it, it inspires all sorts of questions about, well, what if your job is to do Facebook, right? Or what if your job is to post, post things on Instagram? And in fact, I think both Wes and I have worked with a variety of organizations where our job involved managing social media presences. And although I'm all for scaling back my personal use of social media, and I've done a good job of regulating that personally, I cannot imagine a federal law that tells me that if I spend, you know, 15 minutes working on the NCC Twitter account, which is something I do do, right, um, then suddenly I'm limited to Twitter for 15 minutes a day, so uh, personally. And I just, uh, it, you know, I, I, I think both Wes and I uh, don't have a problem broadly w- with regulation, except that it's got to be smart regulation, not smart as in this bad bill acronym, but as in like, you know, we have to find a way to empower people and to, to utilize the power of the tools to allow people to make their own decisions without being overly impacted by the technology itself. And Wes, do you want to talk a little bit about the de-gamification parts of the bill? Because I know you tweeted about that. Yeah, um, pretty, pretty crazy. Uh, so the well, the bill, the, one of my geeks of the week, I'll preview a little bit, is a, is a podcast um, that I've been listening to that talks a lot about these 
like it, it almost sounds like it was written after maybe uh, the senator, you know, listened to this podcast. Um, the ways in which, you know, slot machine design and very intentional, you know, right. gambling um, best yeah. practices basically for casino owners and operators um, have been employed by the creators of social media. And so, um, you know, the, the kinds of things that just allow you to stay in a, a flow environment in a flow mode. Um, there's something up, what was it called? It was a something affect um, where it's basically where, you know, your, your brain is, is just on cruise control and, and you're just, you know, able to just consume and take this in and it, there's, there's, there's pleasure, right? There, the brain is releasing chemicals and things that are just, you know, super pleasurable here. <laughs> But one of the things it has in this bill is basically something that would ban gamification. So it says that if you have any kind of badges that you're giving to your users and it is um, not substantially like increasing people's access and benefit, but you're just basically giving them a, a virtual badge to try to like encourage them like that, that's now illegal. <laughs> Right, and so I, I think, I mean, the article and there's another one from the Washington Post that I that I dropped in. There are no co-sponsors to this bill uh, currently, <laughs> uh, so he's just you know out there on his own. And this guy has Senator Hawley um, has also <clears throat> proposed a number of other bills in the past that really you know take aim at the the tech companies. Um, so he. Uh, has uh, proposed a major update to the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act to curb tech companies' ability to monitor online behavior of kids. Um, it's interesting, the Washington Post, he's he's the youngest senator. So the Washington Post uh, in this article, this is from yesterday, July 30th, uh, the headline is, a lawmaker wants to end social media addiction by killing features that enable mindless scrolling. Um, here's the quote that I think is just uh, uh, the most unfortunate part. He... Uh, the senator um, has called social media, quote, a parasite on productive investment, on meaningful relationships, on a healthy society, end quote. And once asked during an NBC interview, quote, should these platforms exist at all? So I do think it is extremely important for us to recognize the addictive design of these platforms, the need that we do have to self-regulate and the role that design can play. However, it's a, it's a big step to go from, you know, we need designers to take these things into consideration. And then, you know, Congress needs to, to ban infinite scroll autoplay and badges in all, you know, websites and, and platforms. So I don't think we're going to see this become law. Um, I, but it is, this is the first, if you read the text of the bill, which I actually did, um, you know, it is the first legislation I've certainly ever read, you know, that calls out the attention economy, that, that calls out tech companies for intentionally, you know, trying to hook, uh, users. Um, and, and so it's, it's really interesting. Like this would be a very interesting writing prompt, uh, to give to your students this year, right? In fact, I might even think about that in terms of responding, um, to see, you know, what, what they, what they have to say about that because, there's a lot of a good conversation to have in terms of how do you view the, the roles here? Is, is there a paternal role for um, what, what, what could be arguably, you know, presented as consumer protection in the same way that we have consumer protection laws? Does consumer protection law need to extend out to social media? So 
Right. Well, I also mentioned, too, that, I mean, obviously, I, I can't imagine this bill will go anywhere, right, that it will get any serious consideration from either um, the House or the Senate. But but let me be also super clear. These are the same tactics. The tactics he's talking about are used by, um, well, a wide variety of commercial pursuits, right? Let's not forget that Amazon, once you install the app on your phone, it's constantly letting you, via badges and other means of tracking um, you, your behavior with the site, ways it can try to sell you things, right? And and let's be also super clear, there's a gazillion dollar industry that's been around for decades now that's around advertising things to you to get you to take action. And it's it's the height of hypocrisy to me, say the social media, which has a harder a com- a commercial model to define in something like a law, is apt to be regulated in this way, and yet we refuse to do anything about Amazon um, or really any platform. Like, where was, uh, you know, where was this when Walmart was taking over and closing down mom-and-pop shops 25 years ago? And, you know, and the answer to that is that we have a capital system and that, that generally speaking, we we have a laissez-faire approach approach to such things. Um, I think there's a role with regulation, right? I think there's a conversation we need to have, but stuff like this is a distraction, and it really doesn't do anything to elevate the the conversation and I'm against it. I mean, I, there's just no other way of putting this. Like I think it is a waste of time to talk about grandiose proposals that eff- effectively do what good design would do inside the app. So I look forward to more of these ridiculous things. Um, I do suspect that we haven't done enough to get rid of tampering out of the 2020 presidential election. I'm assuming that whoever wins the 2020 election, uh, day one of, of, of that person's administration in 2021 will feature um, a variety of ridiculous proposals. And it doesn't really matter if it's left or right. That's not the point. The point is, is that we need people in Washington that understand tech, that can start proposing meaningful regulations that are going to do something real, you know, empower users to take control of their privacy. There is a component of this bill that does does, uh, uh, it does give you a little more control over your data inside the app, but with all this other cruft, that's going to get lost. So, yeah, pretty silly. So, All right. I want to remind uh, folks, and we do have a couple live viewers, that you can access the links that we are talking about tonight, uh, both during the show and afterwards, on edtechsr.com slash links. We've got a Google Doc there that has all of those links. And if you are watching the show live, uh, hey, we're using this new platform. We'd love to uh, interact with you. So if you leave a comment either on Facebook Live or on YouTube Live, uh, we will see it. It'll pop up, and we can actually... Uh, you know, share that and we'll respond to that. Uh, so very good. Where next, Dr. Neifer? A couple other tech, tech correction articles. This one's just interesting more than anything else. There's a great photo essay in the New York Times today about how phones uh, made your world your office. And I, it, it, the, the reason why it, it, it rang true with me today because I actually gave a presentation yesterday as part of the School Administrators of Montana um, Curriculum Leadership Conference yesterday, and part of it was my shtick I do on digital distraction and the whole notion of uh, the because we can be connected 24 hours a day, we often feel the obligation to be connected 24 hours a day, and it kind of goes through the process and shows off some of the big bag phones and ginormous cell phones um, of the 80s and, and early 90s, and kind of goes through this notion of how an always connected person um, you know, does feel obligated to be involved in in, in business. And I share that link because it's interesting eye candy and uh, nerds will rejoice at seeing some of the pictures of the, the super phones from back in the day. But probably a little more juicy of an article to talk about. There's a great blog post from 
the Electronic Freedom Foundation, the EFF, which is an organization both Wes and I have talked about in the past, uh, doing great work to try to meaningfully create um, uh, 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 privacy regulations and, and their force for good in, in the regulation world. But um, they have a great uh, blog post on ad blocking and uh, kind of talks a little bit about uh, the history of, of, of problematic ads on the Internet. They talk about the pop-up ad, which was a big phenomenon 20 years ago on the Internet. It's been largely dealt with with software fixes. And they mentioned the ongoing fight between um, its first ads, then ad blockers, then ad blocker blockers, and now we have ad blocker blocker blockers, right? Because it's this ever increasing um, game of trying to one up the forces of pro advertisement versus the the, the forces of, of anti advertisement. And they talk a little bit about that that there's going to have to be a rectification at some point of this debate, right? Like the internet cannot exist for free. Um, but at the same time, if they suggest 25% of users are actively using ad blocks, that makes it worse for the other 75%, right? Like those 75% of users that do see ads will see worse pages because they're going to have to, you know, compensate for that lack of, of 25% by putting more ads in those that see them. And I know personally, one of the things that, and I, I talk about this whenever I talk about a good ad blocker, is that it, it, it it's ethically problematic for me because I do think we we do owe it to platform developers to, you know, to look at advertising in the same way that it makes newspapers cheaper, it makes the internet cheaper too, right? It helps fund the processes. But at the same time, you know, let's be, you know, honest that that a lot of sites just go way overboard on ads. Um, in Montana, my local newspaper, which I do subscribe to digitally, uh, the page is unreadable without the ad blocker turned on. And as it turns out, they are now using an ad blocker blocker. And I'm kind of looking forward. I have done a little bit of research about Emerging plugins that are, you know, ad blocker, blocker, blockers. But that's not because I want to just not see ads. I just don't want to be slapped in the face with them, right? Like, that's the problem. And I also worry a little bit. I'm actually working on a presentation for uh, the 2020 NCC conference in Seattle about digital reading. One of the things I'm concerned about by classes that utilize a lot of Internet-based resources that may or may not be vetted for students is that you are sending your kids down distraction orama when you send them out to the open Internet, right? And while an ad blocker isn't a complete solution to that, right, I do think we need to be cognizant of the fact that, you know, uh, uh, you may remember, in fact, Wes, I think we talked about this, 20 years ago there was a big hubbub over Channel 1, which was a television service um, in the United States that would come in and put free televisions in schools in exchange for students watching a five-minute news video every day that was interlaced with advertising. It led to shocking discussion in the world about, and what, I can't remember if it was longer ago than 20 years ago. Maybe I'm just getting no, old. that's probably not right. So there was so much discussion about this and the advertising invocation of, of our students and that, you know, schools should be free of advertising. And what's interesting about that is that, you know, you have a lot of advocates for using the open Internet for curriculum and for fodder for students and researching, that sort of thing. And we just don't seem to really bat an eye at the fact that advertising is a serious component of the Internet, right? So um, I, I don't know really where I'm going with this other than to say this advertising conversation is all implied in the broad tech correction. And I think schools in particular, we need to start having maybe some nuanced conversations about, like, I certainly would never say censor the Internet because it has advertising on it. 
but we probably at least need to be acknowledging that when we send kids out to the open internet, whether it's a link we're sharing or just for research, they are being bombarded with advertising. Thoughts, Absolutely. Dr. Oh, man. Several. Uh, first off, let's make sure as we're using the internet with students, as we're showing content in, in class, as we're giving a presentation, uh, that we're running an ad blocker, right? It's a great media literacy exercise with students to look at articles. You're thinking about your local, you know, newspaper like you were talking about. On some sites, it can just be incredibly different to have the ads blocked versus, you know, having them on. Um, we, uh, you know, I think it's maybe it's going to change a little bit with its frequency this year, but we've, we've had, had daily chapel at our school. Um, and that is something that I just cringe when somebody's putting a YouTube video up, right? And then there's some kind of a banner ad or something else that pops up. Uh, second point is, you know, one of the reasons we need to think about using full-blown laptop devices I love my iPad, right? I've got, I've got my iPad right here where, you know, I'm looking at, at articles. Ooh, let me allow it to have, recognize my face so it'll unlock. Um, you know, I, I love my iPad, but I am limited on the kinds of things I can do and, and block. There are some, um, some, you know, blocks now for Safari and things like that. But like when I'm watching in the YouTube app, I, I have to pay for YouTube Red if I'm going to, you know, have those ads suppressed. And I really think it's important that not only is the data of our students protected and and not tracked, you know, like Google's Suite for Education makes very, very clear boundaries that they're not, you know, gathering all this information about about students uh, when they're using their school accounts. Um, it's important that we... That, Avoid that is that we help students become self-regulating in terms of distraction. This is an important media literacy and digital citizenship skill. And um, I think also one of the reasons I'm so excited about heading, heading back this year here in a couple of weeks when school starts is I'll be teaching fifth and sixth grade. And I had a chance a couple of weeks ago to uh, head up to Providence, Rhode Island for the Summer Institute on Media or actually on Digital Literacy. Um, and there's a lot of kind of synonymous use of media literacy and digital literacy. But in terms of media literacy, advertising is really the basis of mind hacking, right? It is happening all the time, all around us, where individuals and organizations are trying to get us to uh, desire a product, perhaps be discontented with what we have, and in any way, get us to go out and buy something and do something. And so with my fifth graders, we're, de we're definitely going to be doing some lessons about advertising. And so um, anyway, it's it's big. As you said, there's issues to work out. How are we going to pay for the web? Um, but, you know, a quarter of all folks, you know, using the Internet today are running an ad blocker that I, from from the article, I thought was a pretty stunning statistic. And I think it is an educational best practice today as a teacher to absolutely use an ad blocker. Uh, uBlock Origin is my ad blocker of choice, both in Chrome and Firefox. It's very lightweight and there was some contention a little while ago whether Google was actually going to try to block that from from working in the way that it has. Um, but that is one extension for our students that as the director of technology for the last three years, I just I put it on everybody's account. And so when you are a student at our school and you log into a Chromebook, um, hey, your ads are blocked. And that's just something that we did as an IT department. So if you're not doing that, I encourage you to do it. Um, and yeah, we need to be supporting the EFF because initiatives like this that are raising awareness and promoting, you know, the right that we should have, I think, to be able to filter and control that, that content, um, 
it, it's an interesting game of cat and mouse. And there, there definitely are a few sites that I've been to lately that said, you know, we're running it. You're running your ad blocker. We're not going to let you read this article until you unblock it. And I usually just close that article and go read something else because I'm not going to turn it off generally. Awesome. So uh, where to next, sir? Oh, let's talk a little bit about esports. Did you see this? These articles about Fortnite. This is unbelievable. So <clears throat> this is from TechCrunch on July 28th. Fortnite World Cup has handed out $30 million in prizes and cemented its spot in culture. And then I've got a couple ESPN articles um, also from July 28th. Kyle Bugha, uh, Gearsdorf, age 16, wins Fortnite World Cup singles and $3 million. And then uh, there's an article that says esports celebs and influencers could push prize pools to new heights. Um, as a contrast, I, one of these articles was pointing out that, you know, Tiger Woods, I think, in one of his most recent victories, cleared a little over $2 million. And so the 16-year-old who previously was an unknown in the esports world, uh, you know, made it into this tournament in New York City, and he got first place, and he, he walked away with $3 million. So for those that don't know what we're talking about, you know, esports is the playing of games for an audience and it is now, you know, huge money. So you can, you can bet if you would want that many of our students heading back to class here in North America, you know, whether it's in a few weeks or a month or whatever, are going to be talking about this. <clears throat> I've heard some really interesting stories this summer. Um, back to screen addiction and, and just kids that really get angry when their parents put limits on them for how long, you know, they can be on their screen and a lot of times on Fortnite. Um, when you read, I think this, it was the first ESPN article. I mean, the mom was talking about the, the number of hours that he played the game, like I think 10 and 12 hours a day. <clears throat> and, um, you know, I don't know. This, this is a new world, man. So what, this is a little bit like the Hunger Games, right? Because that's the Battle Royale mode of Fortnite is 100 players are dropped into this island or this place, and then they try to kill each other. And whoever is the last one alive is the, is the winner. <clears throat> now, it doesn't have a lot of gore and blood, um, which I think probably lots of parents are, are thankful for. And that may be part of the reason why lots of parents are allowing their kids to do that. But um We've talked before on the show about this uh, Ready Player One movie, which I thought was excellent. And it was, you know, based off of a book. And it's this idea that in the future, you know, huge numbers of people are living a lot of their life in a virtual world where they're interacting with each other. So we're kind of seeing a glimpse of that today, I think, where Ready Player One and The Hunger Games are, are kind of merging. So, Jason, if you had, let's say, a preteen in your house today, like, would you have some boundary limits for, like, Fortnite and playing Fortnite, what what would your uh, decision matrix look like? Well, let's be clear that I, I've, I've actually had a teen in my house that was a big Fortnite player, right? I had a Swedish exchange student last year, and Alvin was a big Fortnite player. Um, my wife and I talked about this a little bit, and actually it it's funny you should mention that because uh, during spring break the year Alvin was with us, um, my mother-in-law had commented a little bit about how, you know, there's this there's this beautiful ocean outside, and here's Alvin playing Fortnite all night. And my wife uh, said, well, you know, it's his vacation, too, and he could choose to do what he wants to do, which was a probably a delightful preview of what parenting um, with with, with uh, uh, grandparents around looks like. But, you know, the, uh, the, the answer 
for, for me probably is that there is some balance you need to set, right? Like, I don't want my kids up all night on a weeknight, um, you know, playing Fortnite when they should be getting 10 hours of sleep because that's what, you know, uh, 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 experts recommend for kids sort of thing. But, it, you know, the, the part for me that's, that's wild about this is the fact that ESPN is covering this now, right? Like, you can go to their website, you can go to their esports page, and they're covering it with just as, as, as breathlessly and, and, and seriously as they're covering every other sport, right? And it used to be that ESPN was about the kind of big sports and they, uh, you know, moved away from, from some of the, the, the less traditional sports or lesser known sports and they embraced those. Now they're embracing esports. There are esports teams at high schools. There are leagues in some states, uh, that are beginning to become regulated by the athletic associations, the activity associations in those states. It's clearly here to stay. And I'm delighted by the fact that there was a $3 million winner to the Fortnite championship. They awarded $30 million in prizes. I think that's an interesting piece. And it acknowledges that, you know, you may not, in the same way that you may not like a sport or, or how a thing plays out, there is a competitive element that requires a skill. And humans like to do that. We like to compete, right? So uh, this is no different to me than, than, than really anything else. So super interesting stuff. Huge industry. Um, obviously a, a big deal. Um, and I am curious to see where this goes. Absolutely. All right. Where would you like to go next? Let's, um, let's go to some con- consumer rights stuff. So, um, I, uh, I fix it, which is a popular website that, that shows off, um, I guess for lack of a better way of putting it, tutorials um, on how to kind of fix your own electronics. iFixit is probably best known for the fact that whenever there's a major release of a new uh, premier top-tier phone, sometimes cheaper phones, they'll do a teardown of it and show what's inside of that phone and oftentimes get information that a company won't release. They are uh, located in Australia and will usually get a an early copy of a phone, you know, uh, 16 hours before it releases in the United States, for example, and tear that down and show you what's inside of it so you can kind of see the parts. But iFixit offers tools and guides for how to fix your own electronics, right? And they have uh, released an open letter, which they're aiming at um, the F- of FTC, Federal Trade Commission, um, about something that Google's been doing that frankly causes me a little bit of concern, which is they are not allowing advertising for um, services or pages that allow you to either repair electronics, third-party repair services for electronics, or teach you how to do that yourself. And there's some debate. The, the the blog post is really good because it does introduce some questions to this. I fix it has been apparently banned from Google Ads because they offer references to people that do uh, offer third party repair services. But this seems to go against the spirit, uh, in my mind, of what Google was founded on, which is access to information. You know whether it's commercially or politically popular or not. And I think you should be able to repair your own electronics. And um, in this particular case, uh, I know they've also uh, uh, used YouTube as a platform to take down videos related to how to so-called root your phone, which is a process you can do on Android to get access to kind of the back end of the phone. It's dangerous to do it because it can introduce all sorts of, of malware or other nastiness into your phone. But for an advanced user, you can do some cool things with rooting. I've taken older Android phones and uh, and updated the operating system to a newer version because 
there's a large community on the internet that's about taking older devices, five, six, seven-year-old phones, and updating them to the latest versions of software so you can utilize the new software with an older phone. And I don't like it that Google is censoring that information. And, and no matter how you define the debate, I fix it as a good job of talking about how complex the debate is because it may not be about their guides. It may be about their reference to third parties that, that do fixing for you. The fact that you can't replace your own battery anymore. The fact that you, uh, uh there, there's no user serviceable parts in most modern machines. I, I, I think that's bad news. And so, um, I do not like that Google is is starting to regulate uh, advertising in that way. It's it's amazing, you know. Even in the realm of John Deere tractors and farmers, you know, to your own printer and whether you can get a a third party, you know, print cartridge or whatever. It's it's really interesting how digital technology can give people uh, power in terms of trying to limit and restrict others, and you know. What, if you've bought if you've bought something, you know, you know, I buy this rake, I buy this shovel, you know, no, nobody is coming to my house to say, wait a minute, you can't, you know, cut, you can't cut that and make that shorter. You know, you're going to, you know, you're going to violate the terms of service of, uh, you know, how we've sold that to you or whatever. So it's it's an interesting dynamic where technology, you know, gives some different powers and, and the ways also just. I mean, again, here's a great writing prompt, right? That's a, that's a great writing prompt for students to try to consider because, you know, who, who should have the right to be able to decide, you know, what, where do we draw the line with advertising? You know, what's going to be allowed? What's going to be banned? Uh, you know, is that, you know, is that, is that appropriate on, on Google's part? Yep. Um, under the same consumer rights heading, because uh, they kind of just fit fit here, th- this was an, actually uh, an article we didn't get to last week. This is Ars Technica on July 23rd. And the headline is, Tech Firms Can and Must Put Backdoors in Encryption, Attorney General Barr Says. And this is really not anything new. This is the same song that we've you know heard the Department of Justice singing for a long time. Um, and uh, the, the subtitle here says, he's tired of, quote, dogmatic announcements that lawful access simply cannot be done, you know, end quote. Um, We don't have anything in the show notes this week about Hong Kong and what's been going on there with protests and the backlash with the government. Um, But I think a couple weeks ago we talked about how, I don't know if it was Signal or some other kinds of encrypted messaging apps, you know, had seen a huge spike in numbers of downloads and the ways in which they were actually foiling – facial recognition technology by wearing special masks and things that would uh, supposedly, you know, cause them not to be able to be, to be recognized. But um, again, this is a great topic to discuss with students, right? Um, One of the headlines that happened a few years ago was the San Bernardino shooter where the government asked Apple specifically to help them hack into this phone and Apple refused to do that. Uh, They then ended up going to an Israeli company that, was able to hack into the phone to get the information. Uh, but we definitely have the, you know, this, this, this argument back and forth. <clears throat> and I, I side with those that say, look, if you're going to open a back door for law enforcement, you know, you're opening the, the back door for everybody. And um, so there's a, uh, I guess we could br- have a segue to this, another article that has to do with surveillance and, and capabilities. And this is from today's verge on July 31st. The headline is it's sentient meet the classified artificial brain being developed by U S intelligence programs. And I guess one of the segues here is even without 
you know, built in um, back doors to phones and other kinds of technology. Holy cow, the capabilities that are, are being developed by the National Reconnaissance Office um, and, 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 the, and it is classified, right? But is this incredible engine ingesting basically everything, uh, the analysts think, and then being able to proactively redirect satellites to aim down on the earth and be able to gather, you know, the kind of information that, that they need. Um, there's a quote in here from a commercial company. And this is also one of the interesting things is that, just like with Facebook, right? It's not like Russia is not the only ones that can have access to be able to, you know, spread disinformation or, you know, be able to put the, um, the kinds of, of uh, information on into our news feeds that they want. Anybody can hire Facebook to be able to do this. Um, there is a company called Black Sky and I'll just read this real quick. So this is declassified because this isn't, this isn't uh, government. This is a commercial company called Black Sky that's doing this. Uh, Black Sky takes data from 25 satellites, more than 40,000 news sources, 100 million mobile devices, 70,000 ships and planes, eight social networks, 5,000 environmental sensors, and thousands of Internet of Things devices. In the future, it plans to have 60 of its own Earth-observing satellites. All that information goes into different processing pipelines based on its type. From a news story, Black Sky may extract people, places, organizations, and keywords. From an image, it may map out what buildings appear damaged after an earthquake. All of that process, but still desperate data, goes into what Black Sky CTO Scott Herman calls a giant analytic fusion engine, which tries to turn it into more than the sum of its parts, tells satellites what to do with it, alerts human analysts when events meet certain predetermined criteria. So that is... Uh, unclassified commercial capability, which exists today. Um, and of course, our government, if uh, you read Annie Jacobson's wonderful book, The Pentagon's Brain, which is about DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, you know, they are 15 to 20 years ahead of where we are at a consumer level with technology. Just pretty amazing stuff. Um, and before I get your comment, Jason, we will say hello to Kim Case, who is online via Facebook Live. So hello, Kim. Glad to have you with us. And we do want to encourage anybody who would like to share a comment on the live stream. Uh, we are able to see that here in our StreamYard interface. So what do you think, Jason? Have you changed your views? And are you adamantly in favor of backdoors immediately in every smartphone worldwide? Uh, it's obviously a really complex debate, right? Because, uh, you know, there is law enforcement action that I think, um, could be legitimately argued for. But the problem is, how do you limit the back doors to just law enforcement, right? And that, that, that's, that, that's the key issue for me here. And, um, uh, it, uh, well, we're seemingly getting farther and farther away from, uh, the, the issues as they related to uh, the government spying on its own citizens via backdoors in technology, that, that discussion seems to be less aggressive than it was uh, five, six, seven, eight years ago. But let's not forget that uh, there was a warrantless search policy by the United States government post 9-11 that allowed the government to spy on its own citizens without warrants. So, um, yeah, it's complicated. And, uh, you know, it's, it's funny that with, that maybe this is every week on the show that we tend to then uh, talk about interesting things to discuss with your students, but this is government and civics class fodder 101, right? Like, there is no easy answers to these questions, and in approaching them, what a great discussion to have with kids, especially since they're going to be going out into a world where they're going to have to decide what these rules look like. 
We are about two-thirds of the way through the show, and we will remind everybody that you can check out our show notes at edtechsr.com slash links. I would say almost every single week, if not every single week, we have never been able to get through every single link that we drop in there. And so um, we end up putting basically the ones that we do discuss in the show notes of our actual episodes, but we always keep the, the links in there whether we talk about them or not. So where would you like to go next, Jason? Let's talk a little Apple news. Um, uh, very interesting things going on right now. There's a quarterly report from Apple, and the the I think the major headline here, and then there's a, a secondary piece here, is the iPhone, according to The Verge, on July 30th, now makes up less than half of Apple's overall business. And we reported several times on the podcast that Apple is clearly looking for more diverse revenue streams than devices because over time, and I think Apple does itself a bit of a disjustice here because a disjustice is a word I just made up, a misjustice, um, uh, perhaps lack of justice. It, it doesn't do itself any favors by making hardware that I would generally argue lasts longer than a lot of its competitors, right? Um, I still have an iPad Mini 2 kicking around here somewhere that, that's it's on the verge of, well, I think it's, it's almost five, maybe six years old now, and it's a great platform. It's still perfectly usable piece of hardware, even though it's slower and the software updates have made it a little less stable. But the bottom line is, is that people keep stuff, Apple stuff for here for a while, it also means that people, with maybe the exception of tech journalists and the super nerdy that like to update phones yearly or every other year are buying new phones, but we've talked about how Apple's revenue has been steadily decreasing in those areas due to the fact that the market's more competitive and perhaps people aren't upgrading as often or maybe there's no reason to upgrade because they're running out of interesting things to put into phones. But Apple is, uh, as of right now, is making less than half of their revenue from phones. And the reason why I mention this is because what they're filling that gap with, uh, in, with the services, right? They're working on a TV service, uh, TV service. They've been working on better iCloud uh, services for, for cloud-based file management. My understanding is the new iCloud for Windows is a great app. I've read a lot of good reviews about that app, that suddenly iCloud is competitive with Google Drive and Dropbox and OneDrive and other more stable cloud applications. But the question I have for you, Wes, I'm really curious to hear your view on this. I think it feels like Apple has been moving away from great support for schools for a while now. And my evidence of that was how poorly they treated the iPad rollout, right? Like it was years before there was a viable management strategy to use multiple users on an iPad. And, um, you know, I, I had talked to a couple of reps in 2011, 2012 in context of my, my daily work and, and the folks that service the University of Montana. And we were told that one of the reasons why no good management existed for a school was that they considered these personal devices. They were not enterprise devices. They were personal devices. And as Apple moved more toward, uh, as Apple moves more towards selling you media and television and movies and yes, cloud-based services, although it's been around for a while, is this another sign that schools may have less of a voice in the broader Apple architecture? Because schools aren't going to be buying Apple uh, television subscription services and probably aren't going to be buying music or movies either under that notion. Um, where does a service-driven Apple fit within the broader educational technology infrastructure? Great question. You know, I'm reminded of 2007 when my cousin Devin and I were, were actually 
in Moscone Center, you know, at Macworld when, when Steve Jobs announced the iPhone, we were there. And at the very end of the keynote, he says, oh, and by the way, we're no longer Apple computer. We're just Apple. And we're like, wow, because at that point, you know, iTunes and iPods were starting to account for this this massive amount of Apple's income. And then and then the iPhone came. So I think my short answer is Apple. And I'm going to say this as someone who's been a director of technology for a school the last three years. Apple has unprecedented, uncomparable wonderful return on investment value when it comes to the platform, right? We are continuing to use MacBook Pros, Mac Airs, iMacs, far beyond what we could use equivalent Windows-based PCs, mainly Dells, certainly Chromebooks. Um, so, you know, the piece of Apple's pie that education amounts to is certainly small relative to uh, the consumer world, right? Because that is the main focus of Apple. They are a consumer-based electronics company. But I am, and I'm not just saying this because I've been a fanboy for a long time, even though I'm wearing my Google hat tonight. Um, you know, Apple, I do not think is giving up at all on education. And I think that the the return on investment, uh, total cost of ownership proposition for Mac hardware is, is still phenomenal. But yes, Apple is going to continue as IBM and lots of, lots of companies, Microsoft, you know, looking at services, looking at the way that subscriptions, things that are going to continue to generate revenue, you know, year over year, uh, well, quarter over quarter. Um, I, I think that. Not only, you know, it's, it's good to see Apple, I hope, you know, getting more stable and, and a, a more robust product when it comes to cloud services, because that's, that's certainly been a reason I think Google has been and continues to be such a fantastic platform for schools because of the reliability and, and the robustness of, of what's offered there. Um, but, you know, I, here's what I, my wish list for Apple. Like we need a sub thousand dollar, even, you know, close to $500 laptop option for app, for, for Mac, right? Because today, unless you're getting something that is, you know, last year's model and just some kind of special deal because of volume. I mean, you're, you're paying 800, $850, I think for Mac Airs and that's for, for a low end laptop. There's not uh, a less expensive option there. So um, I think if Apple would come out with something like that, but here's the thing. They've been, I think, caught between iPad and laptop and wanting to, you know, for us to basically have both devices. It was interesting to track, especially in the state of Maine, when they were renewing, uh, you know, laptops and things like that, the ways in which at one time Apple was really pushing um, the iPad as the solution and then the ways in which schools wanted to stick, stick with the iPad. So shout out to Simon Miller, who is live with us tonight. Hello, Simon. That's pretty cool. Thanks for saying hi. Um, are you? Oh, I got to say this, Jason. You're not going to see it on the wrist, but <clears throat> we bought a used Apple Watch for my wife's birthday. And uh, that has emboldened me to take the same step. So it's a used third uh. generation. So it's about half was half the price on Swappa, if you haven't. You know, shopped on Swappa, but yes, Friday by 8 p.m. my my Apple Watch should be arriving. So my health is just going to exponentially improve, I'm sure, with the greater awareness that I'm going to. Well, I will say, I mean, I'm using a couple of dated uh, Android Wear watches right now, but it's the uh, I, I I'm diabetic. I have uh, uh, sensors that are. Um, 
sensors that are, are, are literally physically in my body that are sending out information to my phone. Having that information on my wrist as opposed to having to look at my phone has been very freeing. In fact, it's, it's caused me to abandon my previous platform, which was uh, Fitbit. And I love Love, 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 love the Fitbit. I feel like it's a more accurate uh, a barometer of steps. And the bottom line is that uh, it, it, it was it, the blood sugar information was useful enough to me that I moved away from the Fitbit. So, um, yeah, absolutely. So, congratulations. Um, I, and I will say, I don't know a lot of people that are consistently wearing Wear OS watches, but almost every person I know that's bought an Apple Watch is still wearing it today. And in fact, I was in a room full of folks. I stopped by the uh, Tech Standards Committee um, uh, uh, for the state of Montana. The, they're rewriting the technology standards. I stopped in there today and noticed the two-thirds of the folks in that room were wearing their Apple Watches. So congratulations on joining that specialized version of the cult. Hey, we want to say shout out to our live viewers. We have three Facebook live viewers and two YouTube live viewers. So, um, awesome. That is, that is pretty good. If you guys have any questions, you want to toss anything into our conversation here? We've just got about 12 minutes to go. Do you want to cover a couple of your Chrome World articles there? Sure. Yeah, a couple of quick updates from Chrome World. Uh, Chrome Unbox reported today that apparently face unlocking is coming soon to Chrome OS and may uh, uh, debut alongside the uh, suspected uh, Pixel Book that is coming, or I'm sorry, alongside the, 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 alongside the Pixel 4, the phone, this coming fall. Um, I'm excited about the notion of that. I, I do have one, uh, Android phone, uh, that, that does have face unlock. It seems to work pretty well. And I try to trick it by, you know, finding other people with round heads and beards and, uh, sticking my phone in front of them. And I also tried it with a picture of my face. Um, it just so happens that my partner in crime at work, Mike, uh, has a cutout with my face on a stick. So I tried that, uh, uh, and that didn't also unlock it. So I think that's a nice piece that will be available in Chromebooks coming soon. And then also, uh, partly because I think that this is an important thing to know about, um, uh, if you are an IT director and supporting, uh, users in your school, uh, Chrome version 76, so I'm talking about the browser here, which would also be Chrome OS as well. Um, is uh, making it a little harder to utilize or to get access to Flash. And apparently, um, the, you know, it's the beginning um, of the end of Flash. Flash dies in 2020, but there is still a serious amount of particular educational content that is available via Flash, and they're starting to slowly and surely making it more and more and more difficult um uh, 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 to get to that, and you have to actually go into the flags now, the Chrome setting flags, to be able to get access as opposed to doing it in the browser bar. So if you have Flash content that you know is being used in your school and you're a Chrome user, be prepared for more tickets to deal with this deflashification of the web. Absolutely. Um, I like to jump down to our security tab. And uh, again, we'll remind everyone, if you want to check out these links, you can go to edtechsr.com slash links. Uh, face app. Uh, Jason, did you download the face app, which would, did you do it? I did. <laughs> oh and my I, God. I'll, I'll totally admit that I saw the pictures of the stupid celebrities on Instagram with their older photos and like a, a digital lemming. I jumped right off the cliff. So if, if indeed they're using it to, um, <laughs> to take my face into some kind of Russian database, then this mug is yours, Russian hackers. So yeah, I downloaded same day it, it was popular too. So I 
you know, was uh, immediately taken in by it. So right. I do know what I'm going to look like in about in about 30 years. So that's I have right. That for me. That's right. Those were those those images were showing up. Uh, comment from the chat room. Eric Langhorst says uh, some observation was they took a family trip to Disney World. Can't imagine going to the park, not having the official app, using your phone to improve your visit. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's pretty amazing. I, we, we haven't been to Disney World. We've been to land in California. Um, but stories that I've heard from different people, like the ways in which, um, and not just Disney, but they're, you know, utilizing, utilizing the, the fact that we're all bringing these computers with us, right? That have all of these, you know, pretty amazing capabilities. Um, well, on the note of FaceApp, this is from CNN Business on July 26th. The headline is FaceApp deleting it doesn't mean, uh, you get your data back. Read the terms of service of the, the Face app. And, and again, that'd be a great prompt to share with students, right? Take a look at that and then discuss, like, is there a line at which, you know, it's too much? You're giving too many rights. Uh, what, is, what is that line for you? It just it allows them to do whatever they want. Uh, forever, you know, with, with anything that you, uh, that you upload. The other security article I wanted to get to, and then maybe you can talk about that free hotel Wi-Fi um, article. This is from The Verge on July 31st today. FTC says you will be disappointed if you choose the $125 for Equifax payout. And then I went ahead and put a link to the official Equifax breach uh, claim filing website. Uh, we talked on the show. We have pretty much almost every week, it seems like, uh, another breach. But one of the biggest ones was Equifax, which I think was announced back in March of 2018. It happened back in 2017. Um, find out. There's a, a link that the FTC provides. Uh, I, I, you have to put in the last six digits of your social security number and your last name. And I did that for every member of my family. Uh, today, I am the only one that was affected. But you can either ask for cash or you can ask for credit monitoring. This article from The Verge basically says there's so many people putting it in, you're not going to get 125 bucks, but you can get yep. three years of free credit monitoring with all the agencies. But then you can also say if you spent any time trying to recover, you can, I think, be paid $20 per hour. And I actually did put some time in because one of the things that that breach encouraged me to do was consolidate passwords, change passwords, you know, password management and, and true factor authentication. And so we have uh, definitely said that repeatedly on the show, right? You need to be using long, complex passwords that are unique, that are different on every website. The only way to do that and remain sane is to use a password manager like 1Password, LastPass, something like that. And you need to turn on one uh, two-factor authentication. So that's a, a good thing. It's also a media literacy thing. Like, is this a real website, right? If you're going to be giving your last six digits of your social, you know, let's make sure you're not clicking on some kind of hacker site. You know, you're clicking on uh, an authentic, the authentic site. Uh, from the chat room, Eric Langhorst says that FaceApp is something that he'll be discussing with his social media class with students this year. Facial recognition was a great topic. Uh, last year, and then he also comments that uh, he was thinking you can only claim the $125 if you're currently paying for a monitoring service. I don't think so. I think because uh, well, there's, there's a nuance here. Actually, it's that okay. you have access to a monitoring service, right? So I'm a I'm a user of Credit Karma, which is a, a tip I would. Um, 
uh, suggest you, you look into creditkarma.com, which is a credit monitoring service. And, um, I read that pretty carefully because I don't subscribe to a credit monitoring service. I do use a credit monitoring service. And I did see that, um, uh, reference on a couple of different articles related to this. So I went ahead and reported my time and, and didn't ask for credit monitoring because I already have access to that. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I was a little surprised because I have been in a couple of class action lawsuits in the past where there was a limited amount of money. I've never de- received the, the, the less amount because there was more people than the, the fund had allowed for. But my guess is with the number of people impacted here and the wide media coverage, there's no way that I'll get what I, I claimed back from the, the good folks at, at Equifax. All right, Eric says thanks for that clarification. Uh, one more quick article, then we probably better do Geeks of the Week because we're almost to the top of the hour. Uh, this is just a fun one. This is from Sci-Fi Wire on July 29th. Headline is, Japan once again shoots a bullet at an asteroid, and the video is amazing. Um, one of the things that I'm looking forward to doing with my students as I get back into the classroom this year is uh, what I used to call curiosity links. I think I'm going to call them wonder links, but, you know, these links that are just amazing. Uh, it's a video, an article. I mean, the fact that, that China, right, has landed a robot on the far side of the moon and has been, you know, sending back uh, images and all that is pretty incredible. Uh, but here we have Japan, who has done a pretty amazing feat of uh, sending a spacecraft to an asteroid. And then in order to find out more about the foundations of the universe and, and, you know, the composition of this asteroid, uh, they've, they've shot projectiles in. And so this video is pretty amazing. And then it's also amazing what's going to be happening. So, um, it is going to be coming back to Earth. Um, and it's going to be, uh, basically dropping off the, um, the contents of what it just took up, of what it just picked up. And so that's going to be happening. Scanning the article here. Uh, well, it's going to, it's going to be happening, I think, in like 2020 or something, but it's going to be going to basically, you know, take the stuff that it's taken from the asteroid and it's going to drop it off at Earth and it's going to enter the atmosphere and parachute down, land in the desert of Australia, and then they're going to recover it. Anyway, it's pretty cool stuff and, uh, very interesting how, I mean, I think the theme maybe for our elementary this year is exploration. My wife was just talking about how much, you know, her mind goes to space when you when you think about that kind of stuff. So pretty awesome and cool stuff going on there. So do you have a geek of the week for us to the, this week, sir? Yes, um, I'd like to share um, uh, about six months ago, um, I had clicked on an advertisement from... Um, uh, uh, on Facebook and discovered a pretty neat, uh, cheap option for a second cell phone or perhaps a teen, pre-teen cell phone, uh, for cheap it, it, access on that phone. It's called Unreal Mobile, unrealmobile.com. And I'm currently paying $7 a month, um, although I was on an early deal. I believe that's up to $10 a month to get access to a one gigabyte account with unlimited uh, uh, calling and texting that fits in uh, GSM phones, so T-Mobile phones and AT&T phones. What I've liked about it is I've been able to take that SIM card and put it into different devices, both for testing purposes and extra data purposes. And as it turns out, it's actually unlimited data. It is 
uh, a gig of 4G, 4G LTE internet, and then it backs off to a, th- a 3G connection, which is actually plenty fast to play Netflix or do other data pieces. And it also happens to work within like a mobile hotspot. So it's not going to be super speedy past the one gig mark, but you essentially get an unlimited hotspot for 710. I've seen some references to $12 a month plans. So if you have teens in the house or first time cell phone users, or in my case, I'm thinking about doing this with my parents, um, who, you know, don't really access their phones other than calling and texting outside of our, our of their home where they have Wi-Fi access. It's a great way to save a lot of money on, on cell phones. I would note that the telephone and texting is actually over. They don't utilize traditional towers for that. They actually do it over the data connection. So it does take up data to utilize the phone or texting. But if you're not really that much into the voice phone, which, you know, I prefer not to talk to the phone if I don't have to, um, then it's a great way to get access to cheap data uh, that is actually unlimited. So unrealmobile.com. Awesome. Uh, I've got uh, two quick geeks of the week. Uh, the first one, thanks to the uh, recommendation engine in YouTube on my Apple TV, which knows that I love space stuff. Uh, there's a new website called Hack the Moon. The website is actually wehackthemoon.com. The Twitter handle is wehackthemoon. And it is phenomenal to explore Apollo. You know, we just had the 50th anniversary of the Apollo uh, moon landing. And so you can meet the engineers who took us to the moon and back. You can explore the engineering behind the Apollo missions. There's a really cool shot of the moon. and It kind of looked like um, Christmas ornaments hanging down for all the different Apollo missions that you can scroll through. I remember a number of years ago, I was in Vancouver, I think it was 2005, maybe, for the eLearn conference, and they had a IMAX theater, and I saw this incredible IMAX, which had all this footage from the Apollo missions that you hadn't seen before, you know, where they were riding the, the, the moon buggies around and just incredible. I think last week, actually, I shared a video that was a really good one about why we didn't have the electronics at, in 1969 to fake the moon landing. And let's all remember that kids today in our classes have been subject to more uh, outlier conspiracy theory content because of the YouTube algorithm than any other previous generation. So it's really a great thing to talk about the moon landing, to talk about conspiracy theory, uh, to talk about, you know, the validity of the moon landings. Um, and then the video that I also have linked here is called Deciphering the Vast Scale of the Universe. And this is a PBS Digital Studios production. Boom, just get, get your, get your head ready to blow up when, you know, you again hear, if you haven't heard these kind of things before, how there are, you know, more, more, uh, stars and, and then, you know, sa- grains of sand. I think it's actually more galaxies than there are grains of sand on the earth. I mean, it's unbelievable how big our universe is and the ways in which they're visualizing it. And it tells the story of Edwin Hubble and how he actually figured out that the Andromeda, you know, constellation was was a galaxy and wasn't just part of the Milky Way phenomenal. And then the last thing I, I referenced this earlier when we were talking about the legislation on the what was it the SMART Act that is this uh, social media addiction uh, legislation. Uh, this is a fantastic podcast. It's from the Center for Humane Technology um, and the, the uh, podcast is called Your Undivided Attention. And I've just been starting to go through that um, because it is really, really important that we recognize, yes, the uh, social media technologies are very addictive and uh, they've been engineered in that way. Um, I'll do a shout out to Brian Turnbaugh, who is a Chicago based high school teacher that I met at the 
Summer Institute for Digital Literacy, and he put me on to all kinds of great media literacy podcasts, and that is definitely one that is worth checking out. So, Dr. Neifer, where can folks find you when you are not spending your Wednesday evening here in the StreamYard interface, streaming to Facebook and YouTube simultaneously? It's like this magical power that we've been given by the overlords of Silicon Valley. I am on Twitter at TechSavvyTeach. Uh, I also work with the Northwest Council for Computer Education, blog.ncc.org. I do want to note that tomorrow, August 1st, is the deadline to apply to present at the 2020 conference uh, in March 2020 in Seattle, Washington. So if you're interested in doing that, tomorrow is the deadline, www.ncce.org. Org. How about you, Dr. Fryer? I am W. Fryer on Twitter, and my blog is speedofcreativity.org, and I have been posting a bit more frequently and will continue to do so in the year ahead. So I'm looking forward to heading back to work, and I have hung up my IT wand, as it were, and will not be having to heal and fix everyone's issues this year. And I'm looking forward not only to being back in the classroom, but being able to turn more to my academic passions. So this has been the EdTech Situation Room, episode 143, July the 31st, 2019. We want to thank everybody who has joined us live. It's been exciting. We've had a few extra folks join us this uh, the week, this week uh, perhaps in part because of our new platform. So if you're interested or are streaming online, you might want to check out the two platforms we've used tonight, which is StreamYard.com, and then we've also used Restream.io. You can find us at edtechsr.com, where we have both the 32 kilobit audio versions to download, as well as 360p video versions that end up being about 200 megs. If you can uh, download that in your location, and probably most importantly, you can check out the show notes for tonight's episode, as well as past shows. So until next week, we encourage you to stay savvy and stay safe. Please join us again next Wednesday night.